0: This is The Guardian.
1: Deal or no deal? A war of words across the channel. Yes, it's the new season of Brexit. The drama in British politics that never ends. And the longest running of all plot lines, Northern Ireland. Where to put the border and how to prevent it triggering a constitutional crisis or worse. Until we get decisive action taken by the UK government on the protocol, we will not be nominating ministers to the executive. That was Jeffrey Donaldson, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, who were pushed into second place in Northern Ireland Assembly elections last week by Sinn Fein. The DUP are now refusing to take part in power sharing arrangements. Meanwhile, the UK and the EU are in a dangerous stalemate over the basic question of border checks in the Irish Sea. Here's Michael Gove talking about the UK maybe walking away from negotiations.
2: We're going to negotiate with the EU in
0: order to get the best possible outcome for the people of Northern Ireland, but no option is off the table.
1: Are we really back here again? Spoiler alert, yes. I'm Raphael Bear, sitting in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK from The Guardian. Joining me now are Gavin Barwell, former Conservative MP, now Conservative peer and former Downing Street chief of staff to Theresa May and Miata Fanbullar, who is chief executive at the New Economics Foundation, a think tank, and has previously worked at the cabinet office and in the prime minister's strategy unit. Uh, So hello, both of you. Thank you for joining us.
2: Pleasure. Good to be with you.
1: Thanks for having me on. OK, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of what's been going on in politics, I just want to check if both of you watched the Queen's speech the other day, uh, which was actually the Prince's speech. I'll be honest, I don't mind a bit of pageantry in British politics. I think it's quite cute, you know, it's sort of tourism bait. I found it more weird than usual this time, maybe because just politics itself is it feels a bit weird, and also Prince Charles in his kind of Edwardian gentleman meets Mr T kind of bling thing, I found... A bit odd. Setting politics aside, I'd just love to know what you actually we think when you see that stuff. And I want to start with you, Gavin, just because you've, you've presumably been there in the chamber. You've worn the robes. You know, what does it, it feel like in the stands rather than watching on telly? So
2: I've been there even more than you think, because when I was a senior government whip, I was an officer of the royal household. And I had to accompany her Magister in one of the carriages to the state opening for two queen
1: speeches okay that 's like that 's literally like the royal box at the big set piece event i mean, what 's the atmosphere like then when you 're when you 're doing that
2: it 's slightly bizarre, so you go to the palace, one of the government whips is left behind as the hostage to secure the the, the monarch 's safe return, and we were given a uh, guide to the crown jewels and then you go you know you go off in procession literally the
1: crown jewels not literally the, metaphorical the crown jewels crown jewels. not there the let's, jewels. Let's um, <laughs> before, before we get to it see, so miati did you watch it do you how do you how do you feel like seeing this extraordinary it's an extraordinary slightly preposterous spectacle
0: so i did watch it and i have to agree i found it really weird you know the pomp and pageantry i think there is a place for it and you know it's tradition but it just feels out of step and there was something very odd about having the crown driven in a car, in a really, really posh car. And there's just something that is just a little bit off, in the midst of a cost of living crisis it just feels like two different worlds in a way that just really jarred this time even more so than it normally jars
1: let's let's move on from the the sort of fancy dress bit of the constitution to, to serious constitutional matters uh, we're going to talk uh, well first of all about the northern ireland protocol and why it's back in the news and then we're going to come to this question of keir starmer beard gambles what's that all about but northern ireland first By my count, it's now been about six million years since the referendum. Actually, just six, but it feels longer. Uh, The Northern Ireland Protocol was part of the deal that was done October 2019, I think. Now part of international law. Before we get into the politics of that, it's probably worth a quick recap on what the Northern Ireland Protocol is even is. You can both correct me if I get any of this wrong but essentially as I understand it Britain left the EU we know about that also left the European single market which means goods have to be checked at the border to show compliance with EU standards but putting those checks at the place where Northern Ireland meets the Republic of Ireland would have meant restoring a hard border that had obviously been a flashpoint during the Troubles. Everyone agreed that it would be counter to the Good Friday Agreement to have that border back there so the compromise that Boris Johnson eventually accepted having previously rejected was that the checks would go at the irish sea irish seaports and for northern ireland to stay in the single market for goods unionist parties hate that because it feels like a symbolic rupture from the united kingdom and a step on the slippery slope towards united ireland let's listen to democratic unionist party leader jeffrey donaldson speaking in parliament on tuesday about what he doesn't like about the protocol i
2: stood in the election last week Not a single Unionist member was returned to the Assembly that supports the protocol. There is no consensus for this. It needs to be dealt with. It is harming our economy. It is driving up the cost of living. It is undermining political stability in Northern Ireland. It threatens the Good Friday Agreement. It has to be dealt with.
1: It's worth remembering here that this was Boris Johnson's deal. Of course, he did this deal, but now he's decided that it was foisted on him by wicked Europeans and that it can't work. Now, the UK claims the EU isn't doing enough to fix the problem. Uh, Let's hear from Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis speaking on Sunday on that very subject. It is really frustrating that the EU have not shown the flexibility we need to see to get that resolution. It's more frustrating, I have to say, to hear over the last couple of days that the EU seem to be saying they're not willing to show... Uh, Any 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 sort of flexibility that we need to get this resolved. Uh, Now this has actually all been simmering away for months. Uh, In fact, years more or less since the protocol was first created. But it boiled over when Sinn Fein won Northern Irish Assembly elections last week. Now the arrangement has always been that nationalists and unionists share power under the Good Friday Agreement. uh, They nominate a first minister and a deputy first minister. But the unionists always used to go first, and they can't now because they didn't win. And they say they won't nominate a deputy until the protocol issue is sorted. Now, I'm going to start with you, Gavin, because you've been on the front line of this stuff. Just to begin with, specifically in Northern Ireland, we have some sympathy for the DUP position to the extent that they got quite stitched up there, didn't they, with this deal?
2: Yes and no. So I have some sympathy with unionist voters who don't like this protocol, because I think you can argue that it is against the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement, because it introduces something that is Anathema to the unionist community that all the reasons why a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland would have been unacceptable to nationalists, quite rightly, apply equally to this border to unionists. Less sympathy, you would expect me to say this, given what I went through with the DUP because they had a chance earlier on to go for a better deal that wouldn't have caused them so much problems and they rejected it.
0: So I think I'm on the same page you know in some respects this was kind of always going to happen and there was a reason and you know Gavin bears the scars of that that it was so hard to try to get to kind of final position when uh, Theresa May was trying to negotiate this and Whether it was conscious or not, I believe it must have been conscious because the same advice that went to Theresa May would have been given to Boris Johnson. He signed that deal, knowing what it meant, knowing what it would mean for the unionist community, knowing the problem they would create because he was so desperate to get Brexit done, even though clearly he hasn't. So for me, the blame squarely sits on his shoulders. It is his responsibility now to fix it. And I think the government sort of turning around to the EU and saying, look, this is your problem is completely wrong because it is our problem. We set ourselves on this course and in the end, we are the ones that are going to have to find creative solutions. That doesn't mean that the EU shouldn't negotiate, but there has to be willingness on our part.
1: Now, for for listeners, I have to describe Gavin's body language during that, which went from nodding to sort of shaking of head and then back to nodding again. And I want to come back to that middle bit where you weren't quite sure, but before we do, you've dealt with the DUP, I mean, famously, they always start with no. The DUP position is just default position: start with no, always no. Just on the on the psychology of that, and and working with the DUP, you know, you looking at it now from the outside. Do you again? Do you have any sympathy with the European or the government position, thinking you can't can't work with these people? They're just too intransigent.
2: You know, I mean, re- I remember Arlene Foster and Nigel Dodds repeatedly coming in to see Theresa when Sinn Fein had withdrawn from devolved government, and pleading with Theresa, saying it's outrageous that a part of the United Kingdom doesn't have any effective government and it's doing real damage. I think they were right. And and now they're doing exactly the same thing. So, you know, to me, ultimately, there's two things I would say. The first is unionists in Northern Ireland should have been the very last people in the entire United Kingdom to support leaving the EU. It was completely contrary to their long-term interest in terms of keeping the UK together. And, you know, the whole country has never had an honest debate about Brexit. If we're leaving the EU, there are really only three options. There is a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, there is a border in the Irish Sea, or there is a soft Brexit that avoids borders altogether. And we've never faced up to that choice.
1: Now, picking up that point that that Miata made in terms of actually where the blame lies on this, you know, as I understand it, the EU has always said they will negotiate on implementation, but just actually ripping up the treaty is not an option. You can't actually change, you can't take the protocol out. Now, we understand that Liz Truss... Uh, is now moved into a very hardline position related or not to perhaps to the fact that she one day wants to lead the Conservative Party and be Prime Minister. But anyway, I'll read you a quote what she said. Uh, Our preference has always been for a negotiated solution, but we will not shy away from taking action to stabilise the situation in Northern Ireland if solutions cannot be found. And what that seems to mean is essentially some kind of law or legal instrument saying we're just not going to do this anymore. Gavin, is that the bit at which you were nodding your head or, or shaking it? So I mean,
2: look, that would be a terrible policy, and it will fail in every regard. It will not shift the EU's negotiating position. It will damage the unity of the democratic world at a time when we should be working together over Ukraine. It will damage our trading relationship with the EU. It will damage our relationship with the Biden administration, and it will make things worse, not better, in Northern Ireland. So there is an issue here, and the the, the bit where I was kind of half shaking my head, is that I think the EU has never really recognised this issue about the lack of consent from the unionist community, and that Theresa fought for ages with them to try and get them to drop this idea. But ultimately, we've just had an election in Northern Ireland and a majority of people voted for pro-protocol parties. So the idea that then that is a mandate to tear the whole thing up, I think is an outrage, frankly, democratically. So on every level... This policy, I think, is a very serious mistake that the government looks like it's about to make.
1: And, and, and Miata, I, I gather from what you said earlier that you're probably a Remainer. I was definitely and probably you know, have always been a Remainer. I wonder if coming from that position, you, we find it hard to find fault with the EU position, whether, you know, you, there's a sort of devil's advocate thing that you have to do and go, well, hang on a second. Actually, we've left the EU. We're dealing with the British national interest first. It's a, it's a clunky, slow moving bureaucracy. Yeah, Brussels can be a pain in the ass too, right? Uh, Yes, I was a Remainer, but we have left and I'm fine with leaving and I think
0: we have to make the best of it. And of course, there's so much wrong with the EU. There always has been, you know, it was never this perfect thing. But for me, I find more fault with the slightly gangster way that I think our government has operated at times that I think is hugely problematic. And whether we like it or not, the EU is still going to be a massive trading partner right on our doorstep. And we've got to build that relationship. And if there was any doubt about that, I think Ukraine has sort of locked in our minds why it's so important to have those relationships with our partners where there's are shared values. And why I think the idea of unilaterally walking away from the protocol is madness for all the reasons Gavin said, which I agree with. But we can't possibly be trying to hold the position that we are in the international stage when we're talking about the rule of law, when we're talking about all the things that Putin is doing that goes against core values that we have, and then in the same breath, literally breaking international law, literally breaching trust. It just doesn't wash.
1: Right. Well, let's hear from someone who I think would agree with that very strongly, who knows a lot about this, who's been there in the room, who also voted Remain, as it happens, chiefly for the reasons of international security, but then became very much a committed Brexiteer. Yes, I'm talking about none other than Theresa May, uh, who said this in the House of Commons the other day.
2: Can I say to my right honourable friend, and he will not be surprised if I uh, say this, that I do not feel that that would be the right move for the government. Uh, that I think the government needs to consider not just some immediate issues, but also the wider sense of what such a move would say about the United
1: Kingdom and its willingness to abide by treaties, which it has signed. So that was former Prime Minister Theresa May addressing Boris Johnson via Geoffrey Donaldson, I believe, in the chamber uh, on the question of whether or not it would be a good idea to rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol, which, of course, it wouldn't be. Now, Theresa May famously doesn't wear her heart on her sleeve. She's not the most uh, demonstrative person, but she sounded pretty emotional there. Gavin, you've worked with her. Looking in on it now, what do you imagine? It's quite rare to have a former prime minister in the chamber these days. Actually, they've got gone to the habit. They used to stick around, and now they just it's kind good. of go off. I, just, it's I think a it's a real good positive. To, I agree. What, what, what must she be thinking or feeling sitting there watching Boris Johnson do this?
2: Well, I haven't just worked with her. I've worked with both of them, and I've sat in the room just with the two of them when they've argued about this issue of Northern Ireland and the reason that she ended up with the very messy difficult compromise that she ended up with is that she put preserving the union as her kind of top priority in terms of trying to resolve the Brexit negotiations and I'm afraid and I don't say this it gives me no pleasure to say it at all but I'm afraid the Prime Minister and some of the people that support the kind of Brexit he believed in put getting the UK out of the EU ahead of protecting the union and were willing These problems have not suddenly come to light and were not foreseen at the time. At the point that he signed up to this deal, people pointed out what the consequences would be of this border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And he took a conscious political decision to jeopardise the peace process and the stability of our union to get us out of the EU. And, you know, he has to ultimately respond. I'm cross with the EU because I don't think they should have been pushing this. But he, as Miata said, he has to take responsibility for the conscious political choice that he made.
1: Now, he's making that choice. And there's a political gamble here that's a lot about domestic opinion. And part of that is domestic opinion in England in particular. A question for both of you, really, I'm fascinated by this. Is you know At what point is there some pushback politically not necessarily saying let's forget the whole thing and rejoin the EU that's a generation away or possibly never but just some sense of actual political pressure say you know what you're doing this so badly this is a mistake you know I don't know where it would come from moderate Tories, Keir Starmer, the Lib Dems I don't know Miata what do you think where is is that building anywhere? I think part of the problem is
0: if you like, there were always going to be issues with Brexit, some of which were going to be political, like Northern Ireland. A lot of it is going to be economic. And because actually the opposition don't talk about Brexit. So when we talk about, for example, increasing inflation, we'll talk about energy. We'll talk about uh, supply chain bottlenecks. We don't talk about the fact that actually that clunky <laughs> deal with the European Union is also having an impact on the trade of goods. And Until we start actually pinpointing the pressures and the issues that are coming from Brexit, it all gets mixed up in the wash. But at some point, I think our politicians need to be pitting the blame for some of this, where it sits so there is pressure to make it better, not to remain, not to change course, but to make it better.
2: So I think um, there's a division within the Conservative Party about this. I think there's some people who think, Painting the EU as the bad guy and having a row with the EU works for the government politically. And they're hoping Keir Starmer will take the EU side and they can portray him as not, you know, not standing up for Britain. I think there are other people in the government who think that if you keep these rows going, the government is vulnerable politically to the charge that Brexit isn't
1: done. Well, that raises the exact question of if, let's say the government does what it's threatening to do, and then the EU does what it has threatened to do in response, which is essentially say, right, well, you don't honour this deal, then there is no deal, we'll carry on cooperating on Ukraine and, and there's sort of, the base level of that you have to interact with your big neighbour that's a major power on your doorstep. But other than that, all deals off and tariffs, and you're talking about a trade war with the EU. And Now, Miata, presumably, that's the last thing the UK economy needs right now. I mean, that's a pleasing question, but I'm, I'm sensing that... It can't be a good idea economically and therefore then politically to get into that kind of row with the EU.
0: No, absolutely not. I mean, look, it would be an absolute disaster when you factor in that already with the deal that we have in place, exports and imports are down about 15%. You know, when the government's watchdog, the Office for Budget Responsibility, saying the long term scarring impact of Brexit dwarfs the impact of the pandemic things are quite bad. So the idea that we'd get into trade war with tariffs being hit, I mean, it would be against the EU interest either, so I don't think we'll end there. But it's a dangerous game of chicken we are playing because in the end, the pain that we will feel if this goes wrong far outweighs the pain that the EU will feel. So I kind of hope that it's just rhetoric and bluster and that when it comes to it and that there'll be good civil servants and diplomats working behind the scene to try and come to a position because if we take ourselves down this path, In the end, it's people and ordinary people that will suffer. And that's far too big a price, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when it's been a game of chicken before, what tends to happen is the UK blinks first and then Boris Johnson pretends that actually the EU blinked. Is that how this ends, Gavin? Uh, So yes and no.
2: I I think actually the EU have made some concessions on the protocol. They did something in the autumn, but it was quite a carefully targeted set of concessions. What they tried to do was address the pragmatic concerns that Northern Ireland business had raised, and do absolutely nothing on the constitutional stuff that David Frost had been pushing. So they kind of they didn't want to give Boris Johnson and Frost anything, but they did want to address some of the things that they felt sort of neutral actors in Northern Ireland were saying, well, this is quite difficult to navigate. And actually business in Northern Ireland, I think, is much more relaxed about the protocol now than it was when it originally came to place. And that's a problem for the government. right? There's not the same pressure on the ground from business in Northern Ireland against
1: this as there was uh, at the outset. Um, right, we're going to have to pause there. I could obviously talk about Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol probably forever, and I might end up writing about it forever. It certainly feels that way. But we're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about Keir Starmer, curry, beer, possible resignation, and the inevitable subject, Boris Johnson. Welcome back. So it's been drip, drip, drip from Keir Starmer's San Miguel beer onto his chicken booner, whatever it was. And anyway, he's finally managed to get some kind of grip on what we now call the beer gate saga, or at least he's got on the front foot. It was a bit of a gamble. Let's hear what he actually said. I'm absolutely clear that no laws were broken. I simply had something to eat while working late in the evening as any politician would do days before an election. But if the police decide to issue me with a fixed penalty notice,
2: I would, of course, do the right thing and step down.
1: Right. Now, my feeling for what it's worth watching that was, at last, why did it take him so long? Uh, He spent the last two years looking like a man with two back feet. Now he seems to have finally found a way to get on the front foot but I'm prepared to be completely wrong about that. Uh, Miata, what did you make of it?
0: Yeah, so I think it was the right thing to do. I think it was a bit of a no-brainer and I, on two levels. I think on one level, you know, he's a lawyer. Uh, he knows the rules. He would have looked at the rules. He's probably pretty confident that he's not about to be fined. So it was a gamble that was the right gamble to make, assuming it plays out that way. But I think there's a kind of bigger point. I think he, he's generally a man of integrity. And I think in all of this party gate, beer gate, all of that, the thing that is at risk is a sense that our politicians have... Double standards, a sense that they play by a different set of rules, a breach of trust, because I think what's making Partygate so toxic is not just the breaking of the rules that were made, but it's the lies, it's the cover up, it's all of the deception that people just don't like. And I think he had to, if you like, draw a line and set a standard and say, look, we should expect our politicians to hold by a particular standard. If they do something wrong, we should expect them to have conscience and integrity and resign. And we're not all the same. And I think that's really important for politics. It puts pressure on the prime minister. But for me, it's a bigger point of principle. We are not all the same. There is integrity in politics. And there are some of us that are willing to stand by that. And I think that was a really important position for him to put himself in.
1: Right, Gavin, I want I want you to pick up two things there, actually, because one is that's definitely the theory of how it should work and, and whether you agree that that was the right thing to do and that's how it should work. And then the other key one, because you've mentioned that you'd worked with Boris Johnson, you know him better than either of us, is whether that makes the blindest bit of difference when the person you're up against is, is Boris Johnson.
2: Well, the second question is the easiest. It doesn't make any difference at all. I mean, Boris Johnson's not a resigner. There's nothing that could happen that would make Boris Johnson resign. When he leaves Downing Street, he'll be kind of dragged out by his, by his fingernail. So I don't, think, I don't think it makes any difference to Boris Johnson at all. In terms of his statement, I thought it was one of those lovely moments in politics where someone says something blindingly obvious and it's heralded as a big thing. I mean, look, the reality is, having rightly, in my view, gone heavily on the Prime Minister's behaviour, if he's issued with a fine, he would his position would be untenable. He'd have to resign. So in one way, he's literally just said what is obvious to all of us. But it is still, maybe it's a, maybe it's an indicator of where things have got to in our politics, that it was still refreshing to hear someone say... I think I've done the right thing. But if it turns out I've got it wrong and I've crossed the line, of course, I will resign. And politically, which I suppose is what we're trying to analyse here a little bit, it does at least allow him to get back on the front foot on this issue. I mean, he was getting uh, the thing I found remarkable. I was going to criticise him. I find it remarkable that his office did not learn from Boris Johnson's mistakes and allowed this story to be dragged out over a number of weeks, rather than establishing at the outset, these are the facts, getting them out there.
1: Yeah, my guess there, Miata, what you think about this, is that they would have been thinking... We don't want to dance to a drum that's just being beaten by the Daily Mail every day. So I think that was
0: probably it. And they thought we'd go away. And I agree, they should have learned and they should have been sort of fleet of foot and they should have got ahead of it. I mean, just on something that Gavin said, I think he's right. Like This is not going to uh, persuade the Prime Minister to resign should he get more fines. But I think it does put pressure on Conservative backbenchers. I think he's actually speaking to them, because I think there are many people in the Conservative Party who have integrity, who have honour, who are seeing the way that their prime minister and their leader is acting, and it's making them queasy. And I think that line of integrity being drawn in the sand is a line for them.
1: Yeah, that's let me underline that, because I think it's a really excellent point. I want to slightly put you on the spot here, Gavin, because you know, you're a Conservative peer and it's your party. Also, I've established you're not a massive fan of Boris Johnson's <laughs> style of leadership. And I just think, you know, even trying to be vaguely non-partisan about it, there must be an awful lot of Conservative MPs who look at Keir Starmer and think, here's a serious, earnest, respectable human being who fits the mould of the kind of person that we used to have as Prime Minister. He's a better candidate for that office than the one we've got. They must be thinking that, some of them. There may be a few.
2: I don't think a lot of them will think that, that overall because, you know, one of the things they'll hold against him is the, the whole kind of second referendum campaign over Brexit and all of that. But look... To concede part of your point, there have been two occasions where he's spoken in Parliament about this issue and directly addressed Conservative MPs. And you could tell that they were deeply uncomfortable with the way he kind of said, look, this guy's never going to resign. So this is actually about all of you and and what your standards and your ethics are and what you're going to do about this. And Conservative MPs are really uncomfortable about it. You saw that a few weeks ago when the government tried to whip them for that amendment and then found it didn't have the numbers. So... In a way, Boris Johnson at the moment, I think, is being kept in office by two things. One is there was an obvious alternative to him in the Conservative Party, and that person has got into a whole load of political trouble. So they're they're not sure who they'd replace him with. And the other is that the leader of the opposition is not a Tony Blair style challenger. They don't they're not feeling under huge threat. They look at those local elections and think, We did pretty badly, we're in quite a lot of trouble here. But the one thing that's kind of keeping us feeling we're in the game is that Labour isn't really cutting through either. I, th- I think the political reality at the moment in our country is the public don't like a- either of the offerings they've got before them a great
1: deal. Well, it? I'm glad you mentioned those local elections because you know, one of the questions that seems to be hanging over that is how much of the reaction there, the way people were voting was driven by people thinking we want Boris Johnson now he's basically a congenital liar and actually how much of it was just it's the economy, stupid, you know, cost of living stuff. Yeah, there is an economic juggernaut steaming down the roads towards us. And Miata, you know, we, we mentioned that we both watched, we all watched the Queen's speech yesterday. Felt to me basically like just a, a, a list of things that Boris Johnson might try and pivot off to get himself reelected. Not really anything of substance on the cost of living thing. Maybe the same could sort of be levelled against Labour, though they don't really have a response that I understand more than wouldn't start from here. You know, is the whole of British politics basically in denial about the fact that we're in the middle of the road and the juggernaut's heading towards us? I mean, I think that
0: our politicians, sorry, Gavin, haven't quite grasped the scale of the challenge. And I don't think either side has quite grasped the metal. I mean, I'm astounded that the government did so little in the Queen's speech. And what I find bizarre is why frame the Queen's speech around strengthening the economy and helping people the cost of living, and then literally barely have a bill that speaks to that it it just seems incredibly odd feels bereft of ideas and I think what I'd say about the opposition is you know there is an offer to be fair they're talking about a windfall tax that would essentially you know a combination of that and other measures knock off about 600 pounds off bills which would have a material impact so I think they've got a short-term offer I think their challenge is the bigger story because by the way the cost of living feels so bad because we've had a decade in which People have been squeezed. Living standards haven't budged. You know, to use Theresa May's phrase, the economy not working for everyone. That is the central issue of our politics. And I don't think any side quite yet has an answer to that.
2: So I agree. I agree with a lot of that. My issue would more be with this statement the Prime Minister made yesterday that we can't spend our way out of this. Right now, long term, that's definitely true. Right. I think we probably all agree whatever side of politics we're on long term, getting the growth rate of the economy up so that we can afford decent and be in a fiscally sustainable position. That's key. But actually, what the pandemic showed is that short term government can do things that cost quite a lot of money to help with people in the crisis. The Treasury, I think, is quite institutionally resistant to doing that because it's learned that when you do emergency things, it's very hard to end them afterwards. You think about the universal credit uplift in the pandemic and the difficulty they had getting out of that afterwards. But Sunex, Richie Sunak's response in the spring statement is just wholly inadequate to the scale of the challenge that is coming our way at the moment. And so I think it's not so much the bills. There were some good bills at the Queen's speech. It's more that the narrative, I think, is the government is just in the wrong place on this in terms of the level of action that is going to be required over the next 12 months to help people out
1: one thing that really struck me in the queen's speech that hasn't had much traction as far as i'm aware or seen much of is this thing that they call the brexit freedom bill first of all i wish they'd stop naming bills as like in propaganda terms just call it uh, anyway Just just using the titles of bills to score political point is something that really gets under my skin but anyway one of the things that's in the brexit freedom bill it's techie it's complicated but it's essentially saying retained eu law the body of the eu law that we imported en masse just to get ourselves out of the eu quickly that you then have to sort of go Through with a fine tooth comb to try and decide what you want to keep, what you want to ditch. They're going to make it easier essentially by ministerial fiat to just strike it out. You know, It all feels a bit Henry VIII powers, which political nerds will know is just a way essentially of ministers doing what they want without Parliament really noticing unless you're really paying very close attention. Miata, did, did you clock that? And, and does that send chills down your spine the way it does mine? I did. And it does. This makes me really, really nervous. I, I think as soon as something's called Brexit
0: freedom, already alarm bells are like ringing in my ears. But but I think what worries me is partly because there's not that much specificity about what exactly they're going to try to change. And the thing I keep coming back to is, you know, there was a body of laws that we, by the way, helped create and craft uh, in the European Union that protected workers' rights, that protected the environment. And when we talk about getting rid of red tape and regulation... That often means we're trying to run over workers' rights or run over environmental protection. So until I see the specifics of what it is that they want to strip away to unlock our freedom, I'm very nervous about those things.
1: Yeah. Now, this is just the sort of thing the House of Lords won't like, and you sit there, Gavin. What's your plan? Uh, Well, I don't spend a huge amount of time there, if I'm honest, but I think you're right about the House of Lords' reaction to it. I would would
2: break this into two bits, right? So the, the first idea of changing some of the retained EU law I think probably is a good idea. Right. So if you take me out his point about we've got to make the best of the decision we've made, we've taken an economic hit by the kind of Brexit Boris Johnson, had this kind of hard Brexit with friction at the border. You've got to make use of the regulatory freedom that you then have. That's the win. So we've got to try and make something of that. My problem comes with the sort of process, which is take back control is about ensuring that our elected representatives determine what our laws are, not that the government does it. Without any kind of proper scrutiny. So if they want to change EU laws, we need to make sure there's a proper process in there where any proposals are properly scrutinised and debated politically. That, I think, is the the, real, the key issue
1: here in terms of that bill. Right, well, we've done the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've done Henry VIII Powers. It's just a full on Brexit nerdathon, which, as anyone who reads my column will know, is literally my bread and butter. But I've got to thank both of you for indulging me with that. Miata Farnbula, Gavin Barwell, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. And thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about the impact of those Northern Ireland Assembly elections, you can listen to Hannah Moore speaking to the Guardian's Ireland correspondent on the Today in Focus podcast. Click on the link on this podcast's page to listen. You can also listen to the Guardian's four-part series, The Division. The product of six months of work it's the story of a new civil rights unit in New Orleans who have been tasked with re-examining over a thousand old cases. U.S. Southern Bureau Chief Oliver Lochland has followed the story of Quante Rida, a man who has been in Angola Prison in Louisiana for over 28 years for a crime he says he didn't commit. Can the evidence be found that will help him prove his innocence? Follow the link on this podcast page. This episode was produced by Natalie Catena. Music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. And if you missed John Harris, which I'm sure you did, he'll be back next Thursday.